Okay, well, welcome to the COVID-19, what we know today by the International AIDS Society. And today is all going to be about addressing questions about COVID-19. So we will actually ask ourselves a couple of questions um, and then uh, we will um, move on to just take questions for you from you, which you can enter into the chat. Next slide. Okay, well, we, this is the time I think uh, we can address questions, a uh, couple of questions to each other based on um, the questions that we got ahead of time from people who registered for the conference. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll kick things off. Um, okay. So I'm going to ask you the first question, which is, can you help us understand aerosols, droplets, fomites, what's important, what's not in COVID-19? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> this is... Um, this is a very good question, and I have tried to figure out how to frame it to both laymen and to people I'm talking to at work because I think it's been a very interesting evolution. I think that um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic that we had no idea why it was spreading so fast. So SARS, its, its cousin had 8,098 cases and then it was done. And this was supposed to look just like it and then it kept on going up and up and up. But so why was it spreading so fast? And I think fomites got in the mix and surfaces and so many different um, uh, uh, theories. Um, and really the real reason is because even if you feel well, you can spread it um, and you can shed from your nose and mouth Quite at quite high rates. So in terms of fomites and surfaces, and then we can do the airborne and aerosol and droplet, um, you know, you can culture um, viruses from surfaces, but those studies cultured it from where they put a lot of virus on a surface. I mean, you don't, you can't get that type of um, virus on a surface, except if uh, like about a hundred people sneezed on that surface. So um, I think it's very reassuring to say that in this technologic age, we can culture things from a number of different surfaces and toilet bowls and everything else. But um, uh, luckily, it does not seem that fomites and surfaces are a major route of spread. And in fact, the CDC and, and I think Scientific America put this out and this is now being called the myth of COVID, which is helpful. You don't have to um, sterilize your food. You don't have to uh, sterilize all your grocery bags. You can touch things in the store. Um, and I think that's really helpful to have that gone, that particular aspect. But I think the aerosol and droplet and airborne is harder. And the way that I've really try to understand it, is that I think it's both. I think that um, SARS-CoV-2 gets carried along in droplets that are usually big and, um, and have saliva in them, and so they're bigger particles. But it is true under certain situations, especially if you're forcefully singing, for example, or doing something that can expel out the virus, um, that it can stay in the air for longer and that makes it more along the lines of smaller droplets, which were the definition of airborne. However, I think that when we go back to definitions, we as infectious disease doctors and epidemiologists had different definitions than physical scientists and to get on the same page, 
we used to think that airborne meant it was like measles and, and it's not at all like measles. What I mean by that is measles is very contagious. Um, it hangs in the air and one person can infect 15 people. SARS-CoV-2, one person can infect two to three people at its, at its worst. Um, and so it just is not as hardy as measles. It actually hangs in the air and then falls to the ground. So I would say it's a mixture of both. And because of that, it's almost like a mixture of recommendations. We would not be recommending masks um, if we didn't think that, uh, sur surgical masks and cloth masks, if we didn't think that blocked out a lot of the viral particles. And on the other hand, we would not be thinking that outdoor and indoor make a difference if it was totally uh, airborne. So we had to do a mixture of recommendations. And where we are now is that indoor settings seem to be more risky because they don't have the ventilation. So you want ventilation, um, which is why schools are installing ventilation or air filters if they can't have the windows open. And outside is better than inside. And masks, um, even surgical masks and cloth masks absolutely work. So think of it as a, I think a hybrid of the two. Great. Um... You know, the point you made about measles is a really good one. Um, I had a case some years ago where a person got measles just by walking by another person in the airport. The one person was deplaning, the other person was getting on and, and that person caught measles. And this is not really like that. It's not, you know, it's not so transmissible that, that that's gonna happen, so. I, I think that's very, that's an excellent way to think of it because it makes you feel less scared and it's why, close contact is defined by a certain amount of exposure. CDC says 15 minutes within six feet because it does, and maybe that will change so it's a little less, but it certainly isn't walking by. Um, and so I think that gives it less of an aura of it doesn't spread as rapidly, it's not as transmissible, and that masks absolutely work because droplets are quite big, and it usually is in droplets. You know, what got a lot of press not too long ago was this, um, a uh, question of fecal aerosols. Do you want to say anything about toilet bowls and fecal aerosols? Can we, can we decide together that that's rare? Yeah, let's please decide <laughs> together. Not just because it's gross, but because it's, uh, it's again the culture of like, where is it most transmissible? That is really not where things seem to be happening. And it really is, um, it's actually not that hardy of a virus. Measles are quite, measles, the measles RNA virus is quite hardy. It's just not that hardy to sit with with things in a bowl and so um it really is has to be kept moist and it has to be kind of directed at you um so uh that is why um it's it's helpful to know that the reason it started spreading so fast is just like measles it can spread from your nose and mouth even when you are asymptomatic and that is what makes it so different than influenza or sars that influenza you feel sick when you spread it from your nose and mouth, and SARS it replicated mostly in the lower respiratory tract. Um, so I wanted to ask you because, uh, you know, we, we have not been in San Francisco, had the number of cases that you all saw in Boston, but um, so we think of treatment a little more theoretically in the sense that you really experienced it. And um, last time when we were on together, we talked about, um, treatment, but we talked about severe uh, SARS-CoV-2, and we didn't actually have a lot of some of this data. And I wanted to ask you both if there are updates on 
on severe COVID-19, but also um, what about all these people coming in with more moderate disease? Because that's that confusing part. You know what to do if they're intubated, maybe, but what do you do when they're not so sick and they're on the floor? Yeah, no, um, I mean, I know we all remember March and April where we really didn't know, even the, the faintest how to treat severe disease. And what uh, we can say now is that we do have two drugs that do work against severe disease. Um, just with a couple of definitions, I think, as you said, for aerosols and um, droplets, that's important. Let's talk about definitions for severity of disease. So 80% or more of COVID-19 is mild um, or, mo or moderate. And we'll talk about some new data for moderate. Severe disease is about 15% um, or so, at least early data out of China. And what does that mean? So severe disease means you're essentially have hypoxia, you have an O2 sat less than 93%, you need supplemental oxygen or you've got pulmonary infiltrates or a lot of pulmonary infiltrates. So we know now that remdesivir decreases the time to recovery um, in people with severe disease. It has its clearest benefit in those people who are on supplemental oxygen but aren't yet on um, mechanical ventilation. And back in May, an uh, emergency use authorization was issued for remdesivir and there was an update recently that we'll talk about. We also know that dexamethasone reduces mortality and its greatest benefit is in those people who are on mechanical ventilation. There is also a benefit in people who have severe disease who are not yet intubated. So what's moderate disease? So moderate disease is when you've got clinical and radiographic evidence for um, lower tract infection, respiratory infection, but you don't have hypoxia. Your O2 sat is 94% or greater. And I had a patient just like this about a week ago. And um, the question was, what do we do? So just a couple of weeks ago, the FDA actually expanded the, uh, the emergency use authorization for remdesivir to include people who are hospitalized with all severities of disease, including moderate disease. So what's the basis of that expansion? So in JAMA, not too long ago, there was a randomized trial published of about 600 people who had moderate COVID-19. They had an O2SAT over 94%, but they had evidence of lower tract disease. And they got randomized to standard of care, no remdesivir, five days of remdesivir, or 10 days of remdesivir. And what that trial showed is that the 10 days of remdesivir versus standard of care, really no difference. But the five days did have a um, improvement in clinical status, but it was relatively modest. In fact, the authors themselves wrote that it was un of uncertain clinical importance. In all the groups, the mortality was low. Um, uh, moderate disease is much less um, likely to lead to complications. There was about a one to 2% mortality, so nothing like severe disease. There were no data really on long-term outcomes uh, or things like return to normal activities, things that are you know, important to, to, to know. And what I would say for now is um, I would make a case-by-case -case decision for people with moderate disease. We admit them to the hospital uh, somewhat less than we did back in April. Um, sometimes we follow them at home. But if someone has a lot of risk factors for deterioration, they're very aged, they're very immunocompromised, then I think remdesivir is a, a very reasonable thing to use in someone with moderate disease. And someone who's young or has very few risk factors, then I think often they will get better um, without any particular intervention. Uh, the next thing I'll mention that's relatively new, um, we don't have all the details, but there was a trial um, that there was a press release on from Lilly for an antibody uh, looking at mild to moderate disease. So now we're shifting from those hospitalized patients really to, to outpatients. 
So you may have heard about this antibody. It's, it's an antibody against the spike protein. That's what allows the virus to get into cells. It actually was identified from the blood of one of the first US patients with COVID-19. And what they reported, and we don't have some key details, so just keep that in mind, is that they had a placebo-controlled trial. They had three different doses of the antibody, a low, medium, and high dose. And what they said is that the medium dose actually reduced the amount of virus at, um, at the primary endpoint date, which was day 11. Now, when they looked at the other doses, it appears that they also had an effect, um, the medium, high, and low dose at earlier time points. And remember, a lot of people with COVID will, will resolve their, their virus um, in the upper respiratory tract by day 11. The thing that was kind of tantalizing and, and got a lot of attention and something we should watch is that the rate of hospitalization in the people that got the antibody was um, lower than in the placebo group. It was 1.7% um, in the antibody groups and about 6% in the placebo groups, but the numbers were small. Um, um, so it's something to, that's tantalizing, but we really need to know more. And the other type of things we need to know more about is uh, were these groups balanced? How long had they been sick? You know, how severe was their disease? There is an ongoing study in San Francisco at UCSF. There's a study, um, multiple uh, sites around the country through the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, NIH funded, called the ACTIVE-2 st uh, study. And that's using this very same antibody. And I think if the results are borne out, what it means is you can use an antibody to have an antiviral effect. And whether that's clinically meaningful, um, you know, time will tell, but it does look pr promising. Let me just say one word about two other things that have been in the news a lot. One, of course, is convalescent plasma. Um, right before the, problem, the uh, Republican National Convention. Yes, August. the day before. Yes, the, the eve of Repu the, the uh, convention eve, August 23rd, a day that will be remembered. Um, this um, convalescent plasma uh, emergency use authorization that the FDA issued that day was really based on um, data from a, a expanded access program run by Mayo Clinic. And this was the, the rationale that was presented. They um, said they compared outcomes among patients who either got a high titer of the antibody or a low titer of the antibody. Now, they did this on a subset of the people. They did not have the titers before they um, gave the, the convalescent plasma, but they had saved the plasma, so they went back later and, and they looked. And what they found is that among non-intubated people, uh, the people who got the convalescent plasma that had a high titer had a 11% mortality, and the people who got a low titer had a 14% mortality. So there was a, a, a difference in mortality if you got high titer versus low titer. And with some other analyses, it looked like if you got it early, within three days of diagnosis, um, with a high titer, you also appeared to benefit. But notice this was a single arm study. It was an expanded access program. Every single person in that study um, or that program, really a program more than a study, got convalescent plasma. It was just a matter of when did they get it and what was the titer. And so what um, the NIH treatment guidelines panel and the IDSA really concluded is that because there's a lack of co a comparison group, um, because there could be confounding, it may be that if you get a low titer, you actually have a, a deleterious effect that really convalescent plasma should not be considered um, standard of care. And if you look at the FDA EUA, they actually said the same thing. They, they said that you should not consider convalescent plasma standard of care. And we just got to complete those randomized trials. Those are the same trials, types of trials that got us um, to where we are with dexamethasone and remdesivir. 
So that's, that's what I would say, and I think what a lot of people would say about uh, convalescent plasma. And maybe the last thing I'll, I'll comment on, and then obviously there's much more to say, but I'll just leave it at, at one more topic, which is tocilizumab. Mm -hmm. keep, keep your eye on, on tocilizumab. We don't know all of what we need to know about this, but more information is coming. So if you scroll back in your mind all the way to March, um, we know that interleukin-6, if you have higher levels of interleukin-6, the, the clinical outcomes tend to be worse. This is this so-called cytokine storm. Um, and there were some early non-randomized trials suggesting benefit, but not definitive. Um, and we know that random uh, observational trials can be confounded. So two trials have come out, one in preprint, one as a press release. That seems to be how a lot of these treatment trials come out. The preprint is a trial called Cobacta. It's a manufacturer-sponsored study. And that was a randomized trial in about 450 people, severe COVID-19 pneumonia. So now we're back to severe disease. And they said there was really no difference in clinical status and no difference in mortality in the tocilizumab group versus the um, placebo group. There were some differences in duration of mechanical ventilation and, um, um, and time to hospital discharge, but no mortality difference. Just last Friday, um, another press release came out, another manufacturer trial called Empacta, so a different trial, also randomized, also phase three. Here they looked at, I think, a little bit less ill population. They were all hospitalized, they all had hypoxia, but um, they could not be mechanically ventilated, and, and that may be a difference. We don't know the details. One thing I would applaud about this particular trial is they made a concerted effort to um, enroll underserved minority participants, about 90% of them. And so their headline in their press release is 44% um, less likely to progress the mechanical ventilation or death in the TOSI group versus the placebo group. But again, no difference in mortality, no difference in clinical um, status. So time will tell. I think we just need to know more about um, these trials and, and really make a determination. Personally, I would not use tocilizumab yet outside of a clinical trial, but something to keep your eye on. And maybe since we have steroids, we have to figure out like um, beat the balance between those two if it does get approved because it really is the anti-inflammatory. Um, okay, thank you so much. That's really helpful to know. Uh, we've come a far, we've come a long way though. Um, so that's good since the last time we talked. And one of the critical things is how do we combine these? Um, you know, um, not a lot of combination trials have, have come out yet, and that's going to be, as it was in HIV, the, 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 I think a really big part of treatment is combinations. And so once we get active agents um, as monotherapy, then we need to do combination trials. So. Um, so also in the news, a lot has been these reinfection cases. So what do you think about these reinfection cases? Um, and what do you think they tell us about um, immunity? And, and while we await a vaccine, you know, what kind of things should we be thinking about as we think about both reinfection and immunity to, to COVID? Well, I think that um, I, I think that they don't. I think that they've been in the news a lot, but they um, are not that frequent. Um, so I, th I think they got a lot of attention. There was a case from Hong Kong where a patient, um, you know, had to be retested as part of a screening and had it again, and it really was a different um, look. It was a different um, genomic variability, and so it was a reinfection, but he it was part of screening, and he actually was totally asymptomatic. And then there was another case in Nevada 
where the second time around the patient was more symptomatic, different reinfection. And then there's some, I think, being rumored um, and coming out from Europe, a couple, uh, maybe two. With this many infections, over 31 million and counting, and the fact that SARS-CoV-2 now has been with us since November at least, um, it actually is more of the exception that, that proves the rule in the sense that it does look like immunity. We would be seeing many, many more reinfections most likely if we didn't have some immunity to SARS-CoV-2 after natural infection. And I think sometimes we get, we because the media has been such a big part of this and the media likes antibodies because they're easy to say and they're easy to measure. So there's a lot of seroprevalence studies that, that may or may not reflect what exactly what's going on. So just our reminder, because a lot of these people on, on, on the call today are HIV people, so we definitely think about T-cells a lot, but sometimes the media doesn't. Um, when they report on things that really just, just to explain it the most simply is there's two arms of the immune system. There's the humoral response and there's cell-mediated response. Even before that, there's the innate immune response where you just are very non-specific about your inflammatory response to viruses, and that's why sometimes you have to calm it down um, if immunopathology has a big role to play, like with steroids, um, if there's a very disorganized and, and um, bad immune response, there's too much inflammation. But the adaptive immune response is really two arms, the humoral and the cell-mediated. And then the cell-mediated response is really can be divided into B cells and T cells. And then the T cells we know are divided into C4 and C8 cells. And when we just say antibody, which is the humoral response, and do those antibody testing studies where 5% of people in Madrid have antibodies or 60% of people in Queens, or um, I think healthcare workers have a very high rate of antibodies, actually a CDC study on September 4th. It doesn't necessarily tell us the extent of um, immunity uh, to an infection because antibodies can come up and they can come down and there's neutralizing antibodies. And there was a study in the New England Journal from Ireland, uh, Iceland that maybe they can stay up for four months, but it doesn't mean that's the whole, it represents the entire immune response. And so I think the fact that we've had so many papers now in the last six weeks that show good T cell responses, really strong T cell responses and memory T cells and memory B cell responses to SARS-CoV-2 is very hopeful. It's hopeful for some immunity to this virus while we're waiting for a vaccine. I don't actually know how long, um, and I don't think anyone knows how long because we can extrapolate from other coronaviruses and not say it's lifelong, but we don't know. This is such a different virus than SARS um, that we don't know how long it's gonna last. And of course we need a vaccine. Um, but if it could tide us over till then, or if it also gives us hope about vaccine development, um, then I think that's hopeful. So I think that these reinfections are rare. I think that there could be a bunch of them that are occurring that are asymptomatic, which is why someone doesn't get swabbed again and even checked again. And actually having an asymptomatic infection is sometimes a sign of having developed memory T cells so that you wall off the infection really quickly. So it could be that reinfection is much more common than we think, they're asymptomatic. It indicates some natural immunity and I think that gives a very good sign for vaccines. And I think that um, we hopefully will get to a vaccine and a vaccine probably has to elicit something deeper than just a antibody response. 
So that's how I would, I would say that the reinfections got much made of, but I'm not as worried as um, uh, the press seemed to worry about it. You know, one thing that I um, think is really interesting is that even in people, if you took their blood well before COVID-19, some people have these cross-reactive T-cells. Um, that is, they have T-cells that recognize SARS-CoV-2 probably from a prior seasonal coronavirus. And do you think that those might be, you know, seeing SARS-CoV and might explain a little bit about why there's so much difference and why some people get so ill with um, COVID and other people don't? Yeah, I think that's such an excellent question because I think, you know, there's four seasonal coronaviruses and then there's the SARS and MERS, which both cause really bad disease. But if you have some T cells that are cross-reactive against um, SARS-CoV-2 and you would develop them in response to cold, could it be that you're walling off or fighting that infection before you get too sick? And that has been implicated, like you said, in what's, why is there such variability? Why do some people totally fine and some people totally sick? Like Dr. Fauci always says this, this protean, I like this word because my child has told me um, who Proteus was, but like this, this protean manifestations of disease that some people are totally fine and you just said it, some people are really sick. And so could it be partially that we're almost getting an asymptomatic infection because of this cross-reactive T cells? This has been implicated in um, what's going on in Sub-Saharan Africa and India, um, where the case fatality rates, India is taking off, um, but the case fatality rates it could be that we're missing a lot of deaths for sure, but um, and I hope not, but I, I, I do think that it's been implicated that could there be in Sub-Saharan Africa and, and India not the degree of uh, fatality that we thought because the, maybe there's less severe infection because of exposure to other viruses, uh, other seasonal coronaviruses. I think it's very intriguing. It also makes me worry about the vaccine. It doesn't make me worry about the vaccines, but I think deeply about the vaccines. If you have a piece of RNA or DNA or spike protein, are you gonna be able to elicit the complex immunity and the, and the T cell immunity that you need for more durable immunity? Or are you gonna elicit an antibody against the spike protein or against the RNA of the virus and it's gonna last for a while and then you're gonna need another dose or, you know, so I, it's hard always for us to get the complexity of the immune system unless it's a very simple way and this is not a simple virus, I think. Like in the way that HIV was so unsimple, like HIV a vaccine has really eluded us because it's so complex for a vaccine. So um, this does lead me to vaccines. <laughs> I think there's also been a lot of um, media about vaccines and we, it's so complex right now to be, to hear what, um, what to hear people who shouldn't use the word vaccine say vaccine so often. But um, I think it's, it's what do you think about timing, the number of candidates we have? Are you feeling hopeful? Were you worried about the, the latest vaccine trial that had to stop and is still stopped in the US? So what are you thinking about vaccines? Because I know you think about immunity a lot. You know, I, I am optimistic about the vaccines in terms of having an effect as to whether they'll, um, uh, need boosters or how long they'll last. I think we, we just don't know. Um, I am most worried about the politicization of, of vaccines, as you were alluding to, but let's for the moment stick with what we know about, you know, where they're at. 
hundreds of vaccines are, are being evaluated. There's uh, a number of them now in phase three trials. I would say there's, there's four trials as of this morning um, to keep your eye on, big phase three trials. Phase three trials, of course, are looking at do the vaccines work? Are they safe? And if they work, how long do they protect against infection? And people have been appropriately saying, we just don't want to prevent mild infections. We want to prevent those severe infections. And just today, uh, the FDA, there's reports about um, you know, really making sure that the vaccines are, are preventing the type of infections that we really want to prevent, which are, which are severe infections. Or at least if it's not preventing severe infections, it's got to prevent transmission. And that's, that's a, a trickier thing to, to really get at. Um, so where are we with the vaccine trials? I'll, I'll just say a word. I think everyone is following these. Um, the one or the two that are furthest along are the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccines. The Pfizer is in connection with a German company. It's an RNA vaccine. Um, it's being tested in the US and Germany and uh, Argentina and Brazil. This is the one that you probably read about recently where they went from 30,000 up to 44,000. One thing to remember about the Pfizer vaccine is it's a two-dose vaccine. And when we get to the, the last vaccine, we'll, we'll explain why that's important. And those two doses are about three weeks apart. The other one everyone is tracking is, is Moderna. This is also an RNA vaccine. Now remember, RNA vaccines haven't yet come to you know, fruition. This would, these would be the first. About 26,000 of the 30,000 people enrolled as of um, a week or so ago. And um, uh, they say at least that 29% of them are uh, from diverse backgrounds. This too is a two-dose vaccine. The one that um, raised some concerns and that is currently paused in the United States is the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, this one is not an RNA vaccine. It uses a virus vector called the chimp adenovirus. It also is two doses. And this was paused after a case of um, what seems to be transverse myelitis. And that followed a case of what turned out to be, I believe, multiple sclerosis. At least that's the information that, that's available. Now, this trial has been resumed in the UK. It's been resumed in Brazil and in South Africa. But as you said, just as of uh, yesterday, it's still on pause here in, in the US. And then the last of the vaccine trials that, that just got launched today, according to the press releases, is um, from Johnson & Johnson. This is an adenovirus 26 vaccine. Um, adenovirus 26 is a, is a type of adenovirus. Um, this has been used to create the Ebola vaccine, which has um, been approved in Europe. And this opened today. What's interesting about this trial is it's one dose. And this one, other than uh, in distinction to some of the other, other ones, don't, doesn't need to be frozen. Uh, this one um, doesn't have that same uh, freezing requirement. So will this get us to where we need to be? Um, you know, we've heard that the FDA will probably send a, a benchmark of about 50 to 60%, about 50% efficacy. So I, I don't think, unless these vaccines greatly exceed that, that these will get us there by themselves. I think behavioral changes, masking, social distancing are a reality and will stay a reality until we can really get you know, um, a large, large proportion of people uh, immunized. And then the question is, how long do they last? But you know, this is a less mutable virus, as, as you were alluding to, but certainly than influenza. And so I think that and it's, it's less mutable, I would say, than HIV as well. It's, and unlike HIV, of course, it doesn't have that same, you know, targeting of the immune response as its primary uh, target. So I, I, you know, I do have more optimism for vaccine here than I uh, did for, um, you know, I think we'll get there quicker than we did for HIV, which obviously is uh, decades uh, in the running. So.
Um, so, okay, so it looks like there are a lot of good questions coming in and it looks like we can now do these questions for um, part of the seven, uh, for the remaining half an hour. Um, and actually, just related to what you asked, which vaccine would you feel comfortable getting? That's a hard one to know though right now, I think. Yeah, uh, hard to know. I mean, the, the adenovirus, <laughs> the AB26 one, um, has been in many tens of thousands of people for other diseases. So that, that at least the vector has been studied before um, for HIV vaccines, for Ebola vaccines, for, as an example. But yeah, we just need to know more. We just need to know more. Uh, Monica, maybe I'll ask you. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is the question that everyone wants to know the answer to. As Americans, why is it so difficult for us to follow a guidance to wear a mask, social distance? Can you give us the answer? <laughs> I cannot, but I do. I can actually. I do. I think there's like three reasons. One is that um, I think that we message the CDC messaged about masking, maybe in a way that um, confused the public at the beginning. Because on April third, when they put out their guidelines, they said wear a mask to protect others, and actually the website still says that. However, um, and that was based on the fact what we were talking about before that you can shed the virus at high rates from your nose and mouth when you're asymptomatic and so wearing that mask protects others, but there had been plenty of data from other viruses that people wear masks to protect themselves from respiratory viruses. I mean, this is um, true of influenza or other um, viruses. And so it could have been that that message didn't um, feel like doing your civic duty that may not have appealed to where we are right now in this country um, in terms of making decisions. And I think saying that masks protect you and protect others is a more powerful message. And that is how we've changed our guidelines in San Francisco and California both. So both of our, um, both the state and city now say uh, very loud and clear it protects, protects both. I remember the day that masks were messaged on April 3rd um, really well. And I think that um, because the president messaged it from the CDC, because he was holding very, uh, daily press conferences and um, he said, well, I, it's totally voluntary. I'm not gonna wear it. What if I had to wear a, meet a king or a queen with this mask um, and uh, I'm not gonna wear it. And he indeed has not actually modeled that behavior. And I think modeling behavior is really key. I think that any study of asking people to change behavior has shown that modeling of behavior by public health officials and leaders really help the populace get on board with a change. And this is quite a change for us. So I think modeling has been lacking. Um, and then finally, I think that, um, I think that uh, uh, there has been um, mask provision is also really helpful, like Taiwan provided masks to their populace. They actually started on March 6th mass producing masks and, and just provide them. And I think that provision, I think there was a plan actually that, that the government was going to provide masks to the American population, but then they didn't. Um, they think that money went to uh, the defense industry, but um, that from the CARES Act, but that very thing where you get in the mail, something that like you you're asked to do for a whole year even if they're gross masks and you're not going to wear them it's still like it's sort of a incredible message and so i think being in hiv um you and i both know that behavior is a big part of 
HIV and um, harm reduction behavior means that you model it and you provide it and you make it easy. And there are ways that we could have done this differently, I think, in this country. Because um, I, I don't think any other country, I've been told that the Netherlands, there's more of a, of a fight around it, but I don't think I can think of another example where there's been such a conflicted relationship about masks. Um, and, you know, I wanted to ask you um, that, do you think uh, remdesivir and dexamethasone, you were talking about things need to be used in combination, but do you use right now for severely ill patients, do you use both? I mean, at this point, even without like data being put together, given that they're different kind of things, would you, would you just go ahead and use both remdesivir and dexamethasone for the same, for severely ill patients? Yeah, you know, that's a, a question I, I knew the answer to in terms of um, what should be done. I can tell you my thoughts on it. Um, so for moderate disease, no. Uh, for moderate disease, if you're not on supplemental oxygen, if, you, if your O2SAT is over 94%, in the recovery trial, the trial that really showed us that dexamethasone works, it worked in people who were on oxygen. Either they were on some amount of supplemental oxygen um, or they were mechanically ventilated. In the group, um, and all these people were hospitalized in the UK, in the group that was not on oxygen, there was no benefit at all to dexamethasone, and it actually might have been harmful. At least the, the recovery rate ratio looked like it was going in the wrong direction. So what I uh, like to make sure people realize is dexamethasone is not for people who are ambulatory, no outpatients. You know, if you have another reason for steroids, fine, but not for their COVID. And similarly for moderate disease, not yet on oxygen, I, I wouldn't give dex. Um, now, once they're on oxygen, um, you know, we don't have a lot of data. In recovery, the trial that, that showed dexamethasone's effectiveness, there was really just a handful of people on remdesivir. It just wasn't available at the time. And so we don't have data on the combination. And so they do work, as you said, completely differently, remdesivir and antiviral, dexamethasone and anti-inflammatory. Um, I would say that in people on supplemental oxygen, it is reasonable uh, to give both, um, understanding that we don't know um, that they work together or um, we, we just don't have the data to be confident. Um, theoretically, might, why might you wanna give it? Um, you know that you resort to theory when, you're, when you just don't have a, a clinical trials answer. Theoretically, um, we know from influenza at least, influenza if you give steroids, um, the virus just persists longer and there is some evidence for um, greater rates of complication. So the idea here would be the antiviral would, at least in early severe disease, there's still some viral replication. The, the, the antiviral would, would keep that under control while the inflammation was being dealt with, with the dexamethasone. So that's a theoretic reason uh, to use them together. In terms of combination therapies to keep your eye on, there is a, um, a randomized trial of a different anti-inflammatory, a, a JAK kinase inhibitor called baricitinib. And the NIH ran a large trial, it's called ACT2, um, following ACT1. ACT1 was the remdesivir study. And there uh, are data that will come out soon on, or we, there, uh, there was at least a, a mention, a press release that there will be data coming on um, the combination of that anti-inflammatory, baricitinib with remdesivir, and, and that's compared to remdesivir alone. So that's the kind of you know, comparative trial that allows you to figure out if a combination works. So that's my answer on, you know, we do use it at times um, together, uh, but we don't have good data uh, you know, to be sure that we're doing the right thing. That makes sense, thank you.
Um, I saw a question that has to do with um, uh, antiretrovirals. Now, as, as you also said, we're, we're really HIV people at heart that have been repurposed to COVID. <laughs> um, uh, what do you think about uh, a couple of things about HIV and, and COVID? Um, first, do you think people with HIV are, are more likely to get severe COVID, less likely, or just kind of neutral? And is there anything about the antivirals that might protect people? Um, you know, is, is tenofovir close enough to remdesivir? Um, not just that they have the last three letters, but are they close enough that, that they might actually, yeah, that tenofovir or any other antiviral might help against COVID? Yes, I mean, I think that, um, I think the short answer is there's been three big, bigger studies about the, how HIV affects COVID. Um, either susceptibility or um, outcomes, and it doesn't look like HIV, um, at least in the U.S. and Europe, has an effect either way, meaning there was a veterans aging cohort study that was um, shown at age 2020, then there was a Madrid study published in Annals of Internal Medicine, and both of those studies, like 236 co-infected and 253 co-infected people respectively, um, didn't look like HIV made COVID worse or had more susceptibility. In the Madrid study, in the Spain study, people who were on TDF seemed to have less severe outcomes. Um, but, you know, unlike in the US, we use TAF uh, very routinely. And there, TAF, there was no difference with outcomes with TAF. And why you'd be put on TDF is likely because you're healthier and you have less renal insufficiency or bone insufficiency. And so it could be that was a channeling bias. And I don't think that proved anything about TDF, though. To admit, you know, TDF does, at least in vitro, look like it would inhibit the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase of SARS-CoV-2, just like remdesivir would. But we also thought that lopinavir, ritonavir would inhibit the SARS-CoV-2 protease, like HIV protease, and at least the trials didn't work out. On the other hand, I wish we had had a trial on TDF and SARS-CoV-2. I have to say, I wish that was another, that had been another arm. Um, and then in terms of one other study, in Western Cape Town, which is now published in CID, it did look like HIV had a little bit of an effect on COVID, meaning more severe outcomes were higher mortality, but it wasn't very high compared to all the traditional risk factors for COVID, like age and diabetes and hypertension and um, everything else. So it wasn't very significant. So the answer that sort of come up, and I think there's gonna be um, a special edition of the AIDS Journal on October 1st, because I was looking ahead and Mike Saad wrote the introduction and I think this also um, reflects New England Journal Journal watches that essentially in the US and Europe, HIV doesn't seem to make a difference, which is good because I think people were nervous that it would make you, it may have more severe outcomes. And in fact, I have had patients say to me, I'm really adherent to my therapy because I actually think it helps. And I do not discourage them from doing that. Um, <laughs> just because, I mean, if it helps adherence to, to be in a time of COVID, then why not? Um, and so I think it, it probably doesn't make it worse, but um, why not stay on your antiretroviral therapy? Yeah, you know, though I totally agree. And the one thing I would add is um, one thing we shouldn't ever forget is our patients with HIV uh, have a number of other comorbidities that we should probably be um, thinking really concretely about. Pretty much every trial that's looked at HIV and COVID has shown that people who get COVID with HIV um, often have comorbidities. And we had about close to 50 people at Mass General who have HIV and who got COVID. And almost 90% of them had some other comorbidity, not HIV, that put them at really substantial risk for, for COVID, um, severe COVID. They had either obesity or 
lung disease or worked or lived in a congregate setting. So, um, so yeah, that in my mind is, is probably the, you know, the biggest thing to be thinking about with our patients is not just their HIV, but what else do they have? So. Yes, I think that's so fair. And we used to, we used to say that about cardiovascular disease. Think about the diabetes and the smoking and everything else um, and control that. Um, I don't know if you hate being asked this, actually, <laughs> but I have to. Um, have there been any new developments regarding the use of azithromycin or hydroxychloroquine? And the reason that I ask is people do say, well, okay, well, what about outpatients? Um, and we were saying, oh, there's so much asymptomatic and mild infection, but what if you're kind of on that edge? Is there anything you can do? You just said dexamethasone, you would not give, we can't give to an outpatient who doesn't, isn't intubated. So anything else that you can think of for outpatients? that's even being examined. Yeah, you know, I, I think the focus should be on more outpatient studies. A lot of those early trials, um, April, May, June, were really on very, very severely ill patients. That's when we got the ACT study. That's when we got the recovery study. That's when we got some of these tocilizumab studies. There were a, a, a several randomized studies with hydroxychloroquine in hospitalized patients that really definitively, in my mind, settled the question that hydroxychloroquine does not work in hospitalized patients, the recovery trial being one of them that had a hydroxychloroquine group. There was a trial in Brazil that pretty much settled that hydroxychloroquine plus um, zithro really didn't look any better than standard of care, no hydroxy, no um, azithromycin. Um, so the IDSA and, and NIH have really come out saying, no, um, for hospitalized patients, this is not gonna be beneficial. What do we know about earlier stages? Um, if, if this is an antiviral, and there's a lot of debate now as to whether it really is, you know, we think antivirals work earlier than later. Um, the the post-exposure prophylaxis trial that was done did not support any benefit for hydroxychloroquine. There, there were limitations to that trial, so I would acknowledge that. And then there are a couple of early treatment trials also, um, one in Spain, for example, that really didn't uh, show a benefit of hydroxychloroquine in, in milder disease and also one uh, in the U.S. Um, that didn't show any benefit. So, um, you know, I would say that really we don't have any trials that show us that this particular drug or combination, hydroxychloroquine azithra, really works. One of our friends, Roger uh, Bedimo, sometimes compares um, hydroxychloroquine to Hydra. You know, the, the heads keep cutting off and they just keep growing back. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, I, I think in hospitalized patients, that's, that's a settled issue. And then outpatients, um, the trials I've seen to date really haven't supported a benefit. They do have some limitations. Now, what else can we do? I think that's where a lot of the focus is right now. That Lilly antibody that I was talking about, that's an outpatient study that the ACTG, the AIDS Clinical Trials Group is doing. Really important study to know the answer to. Can antibodies um, really help prevent hospitalization? There are other things that will be studied. Um, there's an oral drug called EIDD2801. This is a kind of another RNA polymerase inhibitor. Um, that's another example of a, a drug that I think would really be interesting to study in early disease. Um, so I think we, we don't have anything right now for mild disease, um, but I think we'll get there if we do these kind of studies. Um, one intriguing uh, idea that I'd like people to think about is we know now that people with HIV who are treated, um, we prevent transmission. There's no doubt that treatment equals prevention in HIV. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting to know that whether or not uh, treatment of early COVID, whether that prevents transmission? We talked about will a vaccine get us there? It may not get us there in and of itself. I think we'll need behavioral changes, but if we could find a treatment that also 
prevents transmission, uh, then you've got a multi-pronged approach. Um, and so um, that's a really interesting idea. There are some people on this call who know a lot about treatment and prevention and, and, um, and it'd be interesting to see where we are with COVID in a year. Yeah. Um, the, um, this is a, a tough one, uh, uh, just to put it out there. How do you counsel a patient with severe COVID-19 who many months ago um, was critically ill in an intensive care unit and now has post-COVID symptoms and also has um, other immunocompromising conditions, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and needs biologics um, that might be immunosuppressive? Um, I, I think they're not only asking about the post-COVID symptoms, but um, just this worry about the, the immunosuppressive agents. What are your thoughts on that and, and risk of COVID? I actually have been really interested that biologics in and of themselves don't seem to be risk factors for, even if they are immunosuppressive for this particular virus, at least it's not come out so much. Um, I think things like, um, you know, renal insufficiency being an immunocompromising condition or other immunocompromising conditions, but HIV, maybe the reason HIV doesn't matter as much is maybe the immune system in a way contributes to the pathology, viral pathogenesis at the beginning. So I think that people should definitely be treated for their um, conditions that they have with biologics. Chemotherapy, which is a very blunt um, uh, kind of profound immunosuppressing has been associated with COVID uh, outcomes, more severe outcomes. So I think chemotherapy is different than targeted biologics. So I would say, please, please treat the uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And then also it could be that there is some immunity after COVID um, for this person uh, while we're waiting for a vaccine. Masks are going to be essential to prevent also further transmission and social distancing to make sure that there's not re-exposure. I think you implied this, but someone who's had COVID should absolutely continue to wear a mask. Yes, but I think that does, you know, come to the question of the post syndrome, which uh, that's hard to discuss because it's, 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 I think that we need better studies that like compare the severity of disease at the beginning and what, what's, what degree of severity of disease is associated with post symptoms. Um, but I think there is a, there is a symptom though, a syndrome that we have to elucidate better. You know, we had stopped our last talk with ivermectin um, because I remember Wendy Armstrong actually emailed me after and said, because I had said save ivermectin, ivermectin for the worms. Um, and she had said, she had said, um, she also thinks they should be safe for the worms. I do actually think they should be safe for the worms, but you could tell me if, uh, only because I remember there was this um, compound that, uh, Minoxidil that was used for hair loss. It wasn't minoxidil, but there's something for hair. Oh, hair growth, Beniqua. But it was also really needed for like neglected tropical diseases. And then we ran out of, um, you know, what was needed for neglected tropical diseases uh, <laughs> um, because uh, because of other uses. And so I wanted to ask your opinion if we could come back to ivermectin because we had. Um, discussed it before and not been so convinced, but um, it looks like this question is specifically that some doctors and hospitals, and it was specifically labeled in Florida, um, are giving ivermectin, and what's your opinion? Yeah, maybe I'll take both ivermectin again, and actually uh, someone also asked about famotidine, so maybe I'll- Yes, uh, try to tell yes. You. So, um, you know, 
ivermectin, like a lot of drugs, um, you just really can't, as best we know, you just can't get enough into your system to have any real effect um, on, um, on um, COVID-19. So let me give you the example of lopinavir ritonavir. Uh, lopinavir ritonavir um, has been thought about for COVID because at least there are some studies that suggested it might have an effect against coronaviruses. It was studied um, in SARS and with historical controls, it's being studied in MERS. But all the data for lopinavir ritonavir, and there's now pretty good data, actually quite good data, including again from the recovery trial, saying that lopinavir ritonavir does not treat a COVID, does not have a benefit. One of my very favorite studies um, is a study from Austria where they looked at drug levels with lopinavir ritonavir. How much can you get if you give a standard dose of lopinavir ritonavir? And it turned out you would have to take something like 60 to 120 pills of lopinavir ritonavir per day uh, to get your drug levels up to where you need to inhibit the SARS-CoV-2. Except that you would throw it up so much that you exactly. would exactly. me. That's terrible. That's terrible. Everyone who's ever either tasted and or had a patient take lopinavir ritonavir knows that's just not going to happen. Now, as far as ivermectin and, and famotidine, I think it's kind of we're in the same boat that um, you just can't get enough of these drugs really to, to have an impact on, um, on the SARS-CoV-2. There are single arm studies, both for famotidine and ivermectin, but they're just not very um, definitive. In fact, they're not convincing enough to, to, to be using. And so I would caution people just as we've gotten away from hydroxychloroquine, gotten away from uh, hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin as we've gotten more data, I would uh, urge people to, to stay away from ivermectin and to stay away from famotidine um, until there's some, something more than what we've got right now. And, and I, I really am skeptical about both those drugs. But we do need them for other uses. So oh, we do need them for other uses. We, we need the helmets to be, to be combated. Um, I think that I'm looking at the questions and I'm wondering if I could just address the one about food because um, I agree that these fomites, you know, they, I mean, I actually was very relieved when fomites became less, <laughs> like went away in terms of a, serious concern because I do think that if people stay distanced, the question is actually about serving food, um, that you don't want to share food. And um, I think share, the time of sharing food is uh, gone for, for, for a while. Sharing, um, but I think that um, serving food from a same place with a clean spoon, you know, there's no reason to think that we are um, by giving people food from the same place as long as we keep stay distance that we can, um, that, that wouldn't be a safe activity. So um, I think that's fine to sort of food family style. I mean, actually, if I can bring up that, you know, um, there's been some very good studies recently about um, the activities that are considered safe or not safe. And that's, it's hard. I mean, it was a CDC study on September 11th from the MMWR about activities that may be more associated with symptomatic COVID. And it seems like dining would be but they didn't distinguish between outdoor and indoor dining. So that was taken, sometimes that was taken out of context because I think we have to think about ventilation when we do it. But any place that you can mask, um, I think is a place where I feel safe. You know, if these are activities that are safe and, um, and if you can't mask, then being outside and staying away is uh, very helpful. And um, the reason I'm saying this so forcefully is I think they should open the museums in San Francisco, which they're gonna do in about two weeks. Um, and it's gonna be masked and uh, it's gonna be less um, capability and there's, there's ventilation, but I think it's a place where you can stay masked. Yeah, no, I would say the same. And there, there are more and more data that we 
um, all know about hospital settings and the fact that since universal masking has been in place, really hospital rates of transmission have just fallen, fallen, fallen. And so I feel more comfortable. I like to say that I feel more comfortable coming to work than I do at going to the grocery store because at work, most people are have their masks, you know, where they should, whereas at the grocery store, it's kind of hit and miss. So, um, so yeah, no, I feel, um, I think there was a question about N95s and I, I, I think masks are really, um, you know, the fact that we see so little transmission in hospitals now with universal masking is just a testament to, to their, what they're doing. Yes. I think that's, I think I totally agree. And, and healthcare workers have been going to work every day since March 1st, really, since it started. And um, luckily with the universal masking, right, also symptomatic disease is so down. So I think Dr. Redfield said just a week ago today, the statement was masking is as important as a vaccine, or at least until we get to the vaccine. And I think he was perfectly, completely right to say that, that that is, even when we get to a vaccine, like you were indicating before, we may need more than one dose. So, or it's going to take a while for the, for the population to have enough immunity. So we're going to be masking for a while. So I think make it comfortable and something that you want to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one person did ask about the flu vaccine and, and COVID. Certainly flu vaccine is uh, important now um, more than ever. And I think um, I'm rushing out to get my flu vaccine and telling my patients to do the same. There have been drops in flu transmission in, in parts of the world um, where flu has been circulating, um, probably because of masking and social distancing. But that's not to say we should absolutely not let our guard down because um, we just don't know enough about having the two together. And there's all sorts of issues um, in terms of distinguishing them. Um, and so um, they pro um, I think someone was asking, would those afford any protection against COVID? Not against COVID per se. They're just two different. Um, the viruses are too different. But, um, but just some of the complications I think are, are really critical, so. Yes, I think this is now the year to do 100% flu shot and I'm actually rubbing my shoulder because I got it yesterday and it doesn't hurt, it really doesn't and I didn't get the flu. But um, it, I mean, just a little Tylenol, but it's very good to, I think this is the year for flu, but I think the, you're absolutely right that the masking may end up you know, having a less um, virulent flu season, which would be great because we need a little break, um, but we, you can't know. <laughs> um, I think that is pretty much it. Uh, and um, I did get you for your birthday, which is in a couple of days, <laughs> something where you can mask and go in and actually, um, uh, uh, so I'm revealing this to the world when your birthday is, but um, where, where I feel perfectly safe with you masking in Boston and going into this setting. So you'll see. But I think it's time to start wearing masks and looking at things close up like art and books and stuff. So you can guess where I am. Okay. Great. Well, <laughs> and then call your father if you haven't, because it's our mutual father's birthday today. <laughs> I'm sure you, knowing you, you've already called him. Especially for all sorts of occasions. Yeah. All sorts of reasons. So um, I think we're supposed to end up with a slide that Jose may be putting up even as we speak, and then we'll go call our parents. Um, so here we go um, <laughs> to view upcoming and on-demand uh, activities and um, ISUSA activities, including these dialogues, webinars, as well as virtual courses. Here's your link. And uh, if you have comments, and, and we really mean this, please email uh, the links, um, the email addresses uh, there. I, I know um, the folks at ISUSA really want to know you know, uh, what you're interested in and what you would find most useful. So I think with that, we'll call it a night and thank you all. Okay.
Catch you soon. Bye.